The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Okay, everyone. So I'm just going to share a little PowerPoint here. It's a little heavy on sutta citations. Please forgive me. <laughs> so yeah, sukha as the way to the end of dukkha. This is something that my teacher, Bhante Puniji, uh, focused on a lot. Uh, he said that in his experience, he came across this kind of false dichotomy that, you know, the lay Buddhist life is about enjoying sensual pleasures and that the monastic life was one of asceticism and self-mortification. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, that's not what it's about, <laughs> you know. Um, we can't be caught in this kind of like all or nothing thinking. And that and somehow that there's this idea as the, of that uh, as we get deeper into the Dhamma, that as we let go of things, you know, somehow our world becomes less rich or less vivid or uh, less happy or less full, right? Like, I think we have this kind of bias towards renunciation, nekama, and letting go and getting deeper in the Dhamma with this sense of like, yeah, like coldness or lack of vividness in the practice, right? Many people have accused, in my experience, <laughs> in my travels, they accuse Buddhism of being kind of stoic, right? Oh. Buddhism is like stoicism, but with like loving kindness practice, <laughs> you know, or something like that. Uh, but that's not what we're doing, actually. That's not what we're doing. And then I, you know, I don't blame, I don't blame people who make these kind of accusations of Buddhists being cold or wanting to be robots or wanting to be vegetables <laughs> uh, or that we're so focused on suffering, dukkha, you know, that it does seem like we're not focused on happiness or we're not focused on, you know, these positive, pleasant um, qualities. Maybe we don't do such a good job of promoting it and some of the pictures I see of some monks, you know, like, like their face is just like completely cold. When you see pictures of these meditative monks, it's like they don't look very happy. I mean, I don't want to meditate if I'm going to end up looking like that person. You know, uh, so I kind of want to tip the scales, you know, and give a more harmonious or balanced view, samaditi, harmonious view, wholesome view of of the practice and the things that um, fuel us and nourish us to keep practicing, right? It's important that we know that, you know, uh, what's a sustainable way to keep up, to keep on going on the practice and what are some of the, some of the things that we encounter on the path that let us know that we're practicing in the right way. And on many occasions, the Buddha says that, it, you know, if you see that the practice is not leading towards your own benefit, to the benefit of others, to the benefit of all. Promotions, uh, and it's not leading towards Nibbana, then you shouldn't abandon it, right? Basically, if you're not getting better, then maybe there's something wrong with the practice. Right? If your life's not getting better, if you're not removing suffering and experiencing more sukha, more happiness, then it's a time to consider your practice, reconsider your practice. So <clears throat> I just want to share with you some of the things that the Buddha has to say about happiness. 
He says, Nirvana is the highest happiness. Right? Dhammapada verses uh, 204. Nirvana is the highest happiness. We have to remember that. So the goal of Buddhism, of practicing the Dhamma, is to be happy. Happiness is the goal. Right? What's the problem? Think about it. The problem is dukkha, suffering. What's the opposite of dukkha? What's the opposite of suffering, pain, lamentation, sorrow, affliction? What's happiness, joy, delight? It's just so obvious, right? That if we're trying to get away from dukkha, then we're heading towards sukha. And nibbana is the highest sukha, right? Okay, so let's go straight. Let's go straight into what the bodhisattva, the bodhisattva discovered for himself under the bodhi tree, right? Let's go straight into Prince Siddhartha's life. What does the Buddha have to say about happiness and self, right? So I don't know if, if we're all familiar with the story of, of Prince Siddhartha, the Bodhisattva. Uh, first, he lived a life of luxury, right? And then he left the palace and he practiced with his two teachers, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta, where he learned some uh, we call jhanas, right? Some meditative states, the arupas or ayatanas. And then from there, uh, he felt like, well, these you know, I left a, I lived a life of sensual pleasures and that didn't bring me the escape from dukkha. And then I went to these, um, other kind of meditative states and they didn't bring me happiness. And so let me try something else. Maybe, maybe through uh, extreme asceticism, through the practice of tapas, like, you know, these, uh, very extreme ascetic practices and self mortification. Maybe I can find the freedom from suffering there by burning off all my bad karma. Very similar kind of idea to what uh, Mahavira and the Jains were proposing. And, you know, I suspect that this, this practice that the Buddha uh, took with his five friends, five ascetic friends, was very much influenced by the ideas of Mahavira and Jainism at that time. Uh, but then he almost starved himself to death and found out that, you know what, I'm not getting better. Actually, I'm getting worse by practicing this extreme uh, asceticism, tapas. And then there was like this thing that came to him, right? There's this thing that came to him. And he says, I recall when my father, the Sakyan, was occupied, while I was sitting in the cool shade of the rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states. I entered upon and abided in the first jhana, Right. When he was a little, when he was a boy, we don't know how, usually the story says that he was a little boy, but we don't know. He could have been a teenager. Just the point is that when he was a child, he wasn't an adult yet. Right. He spontaneously went into the first jhana. So now after going through this whole roundabout kind of way, trying to find freedom, he remembers, he remembers that, right? He remembers jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, vitaka vichara, with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Could this be the path to enlightenment? Then the fault, then, then following on that memory came the realization that is indeed the path to awakening, to enlightenment. Here's the key. I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure? Here's sukha in Pali. It says sukha. Why am I afraid of that pleasure? That happiness, right? That has nothing to do with sensual pleasures, kamma, right? Not karma, but kamma sensuality. And unwholesome states. I thought, I am not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. 
So when I say, here's the distinction when I'm talking about happiness, right? There's two different types of happiness. There's uh, happiness that arises due to contact with sensual pleasures, right? Like um, having a nice latte or having a nice cake or having a nice meal or feeling the sun on your skin or going on vacation or et cetera, right? Sexual climax, whatever, all these kind of different sensual pleasures that you can get. Um, so for the prince, Bodhisattva, for the Bodhisattva, there was this kind of entanglement between pleasantness and sensuality. And he thought they meant the same thing. They go hand in hand. But then he discovers, he rediscovers, he remembers, oh no, happiness is not always tied to sensuality. There is a happiness that come that is separate from sensuality. So I shouldn't be happy. I shouldn't be scared of happiness itself or even pleasure, right? Sukha, if we talk about Vedana, which what the Buddha is talking about here, Vedana Sukha, a pleasant feeling. I shouldn't be scared of that pleasant feeling if it's not based on sensual pleasures, right? If it's a higher pleasure, right? So it's a very interesting, uh, uh, distinction that the Buddha is able to make. And I think for some of us, sometimes in our practice, when we're sitting in meditation, it's not very clear to us uh, if, if, if the pleasure, right? Or these, um, happiness that we feel in meditation is, is from sensuality, from being like really, really feeling really good in our posture, or if it's from something else. But I would say, you know, let's not be too, uh, overcritical, overcritical about, you know, if it's, in meditation, whether it's a sensual feeling that's giving the pleasure or if it's a mental feeling or something more than that. But let's look at the results of that feeling. You know, is it keeping us on the cushion? Is it promoting more practice? Right. Is it promoting more investigation into what's happening? Is it leading us to study the Dhamma more? Is it leading us to a better way of living and being kinder and gentler to other people? And then we'll know for ourselves, you know, what kind of pleasure if this is noble or ignoble if it's wholesome or unwholesome so then in the previous sutta uh, the buddha goes through first jhana second jhana all the way up to the up to liberation right uh, and that's how he finds his way to awakening so under the bodhi tree the buddha himself right prince siddhartha the bodhisattva found his way to awakening with this catalyst the catalyst was happiness. Uh, pleasant feelings were the catalyst for awakening. It's very important. But it's not only that this pleasant feeling was the catalyst for awakening, but actually this pleasant feeling, this happiness, was the entire awakening experience. From the first jhana to the ninth jhana to complete samyas, samyak sambodhi or sama sam, sambodhi was a path of happiness all the way through. And that's what I'm going to share with you from this next sutta, the uh, Upanisa Sutta. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it. It says, Ananda, there are these five cords of sensual pleasures. What five forms cognizable by the, e the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tantalizing, sounds cognized by the ear, orders cognized by the nose, taste cognized by the tongue, tactile objects cognized by the body that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, Sensually enticing, tantalizing. These are the five chords of sensual pleasure. 
The pleasure and joy that arises in dependence of these five chords of sensual pleasure is called sensual pleasure, right? That's the one which we need to avoid. Though some may say this is the supreme pleasure and joy that beings experience, I would not concede this to them. Why is that? Because there is another kind of happiness, more excellent and sublime than that happiness. And what is that other kind of happiness? Here, Ananda, secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by thought and examination, with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. This is the other kind of happiness, more excellent and sublime than the previous kind of happiness. Again, we're going back, right? The Buddha's, again, telling us about this experience that he had of awakening. He's telling us the path to uh, overcoming all suffering, which is happiness, sukha, the sukha that comes from the practice of jhana. And then in, the, in this sutta, it continues second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. Then it goes into the arupa jhanas, the formless states, right? Or ayatanas. And it goes all the way to the uh, ninth jhana. And here's what I would like to continue. I, I didn't want to read it all. I want to save you, you know, me um, just going, it repeats and repeats over and over. So I'm just jumping to the last part. Though some may say this is the supreme pleasure and joy that beings experience, I would not concede this to them. Why is that? Because there is another kind of happiness, more excellent and sublime than that happiness. And what is that other kind of happiness? Here, Ananda, by completely transcending the base of neither perception nor non-perception, a bhikkhu enters and dwells in the cessation of perception and feeling. This is the other kind of happiness, more excellent and sublime than the previous kind of happiness. Now, is it possible, Ananda, that wanders of other sects might speak thus? The ascetic Gautama speaks of the cessation of perception and feeling, which is usually we call the ninth jhana. And he maintains that it is included in happiness, how is that? What is that? How is that? When wanderers of other sects speak thus, Ananda, uh, they should be told the Blessed One, friends, does not describe a state, uh, a state as included in happiness only with reference to pleasant feelings, but rather, friends, whether happiness is found in whatever way, the Tathagata describes that is included in happiness, right? So they asked the Buddha, how can it be if you claim there's such a thing as uh, neither perception and feeling, right? There's no feeling, there's no perception. How can there be a pleasant sensation? How can there be happiness? And he's like, oh, there is another happiness. And there are many other kinds of happiness that are uh, that are included, right? Not only pleasant feeling is the only type of happiness. And that is the happiness of the deathless, of, of Nibbana, the highest happiness that is unconditioned, right? It's not just like the pleasant feeling. So we can see here there's two, basically three levels of happiness, right? Of pleasant, pleasant feelings. One is the sensual one. One is the unworldly one, like going through all the jhanas. And then there's the deathless one, the nibbana, the unconditioned uh, happiness, which is that one that is uh, uh, not necessarily always a pleasant feeling, right? But just the complete escape from dukkha, from the escape from tanha, the escape from upadana, from a, Desire, craving, clinging, identification, right? So here in this sutta, we can clearly see that it's a gradual, right? Uh, uh, deepening of happiness, right? A gradual deepening of happiness that leads one to Nibbana. And this way we can say happiness is the path, right? Every single step of the way through every jhana, all the way up to the last level, there is happiness. 
So if in our practice we are lacking happiness, perhaps we're going the wrong way. <laughs> happiness is a it is the main indication that we're heading in the right way. Happiness is basically the path. The Buddha himself says about the path, right? These teachings are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. When you begin, right? Where when you begin the path with the practice of dana and sila, right? Giving and morality. That's good. And it should make you feel happy. Giving makes you feel happy, right? Not hurting others makes you feel happy because you're freedom, you're free from fear, and other beings are free from fear. They don't fear you. That makes you happy, right? The middle is also good, which is learning suttas and practicing meditation, right? That also feels good. It feels good to know the truth. It feels good to practice uh, purifying the mind. And the end is also good, which is the result, nibbana. Nibbana is also good. It is the highest happiness, right? So we should be experiencing sukha in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. Sukha, happiness. What is good is the entire path. I just want to share with you some other examples about how the Buddha talks about happiness in the path, right? How happiness is included in the path and is the path. So in this next sutta, it says, well, then, reverends, I'll ask you about this in return. And you can answer as you like. Uh, what do you think, reverends? Is King Bimbisara capable of experiencing perfect happiness for seven days, nights, without moving his body or speaking? No, he is not, reverend. Why do you think, reverends, is King, King Bimbisara uh, capable of experiencing perfect happiness for six, five, four, three, two, one day? You know what? Just one day is King Bimbisara, you know? Uh, capable of experiencing uh, happiness for a complete day. And then they say, no, he's not reverend. Then, then the Buddha says, but I am capable of experiencing perfect happiness for one day and night without moving my body or speaking. I'm capable of experiencing perfect happiness for two days, three days, four days, five days, six days, seven days. What do you think, reverence, this being so? Who lives in greater pleasure King Bimbisara or I, this being so venerable, Gautama lives in greater pleasure than King Bimbisara of, of, of Magadha. The Buddha was always happy. <laughs> Buddha was always happy, always dwelling all the time. Perfect happiness, perfect pleasure all the time. Because Nibbana is the highest sukha, paramam sukham, the highest happiness. So it's not only as we work our way through, as we work our way to awakening from the first jhana and we go through the whole meditative path, it's not only that we find happiness throughout the entire path, but after we reach awakening, that happiness becomes, let's say, unconditioned or permanent. We can abide in that happiness. We can abide in that pleasure permanently. That is Nibbana. Imagine that, you know, forever happiness, right? Forever happiness. So amazing. Here are some other ways about thinking about happiness, right? In the Dhammapada. Here he rejoices, hereafter he rejoices. In both states, the well-doer rejoices. He rejoices, exceedingly rejoices, perceiving the purity of his own deeds, right? So the practice of sila, of the precepts, itself makes us rejoice now and after in a future life. Doing good now is good for us, makes us happy. We rejoice, anumodami, anumodana. Right, We rejoice in the good doing of others uh, and ourselves. And then we also rejoice later on 
in this life and in future lives for getting a good a future good state or a future good rebirth. Here he is happy, hereafter he is happy. In both states the well-doer is happy. Good have I done. He is happy. Furthermore, he is happy. Having gone to a blissful state. All the time happy. <laughs> right? Because of our actions. If we live a wholesome life, if we live according to Dhamma, if we live according to Sila, we are happy now and happy in the future. Having drunk the nectar of seclusion and the nectar of peace, freedom, and stress, and freedom of stress, free of evil, one drinks the joyous nectar of Dhamma. Dhamma is a joyous nectar, right? As we study Dhamma, as we live Dhamma, as we practice Dhamma, as we cultivate Dhamma, as we share Dhamma, the fruit of it is to be joyful, to be happy. Here are some other ways we can think about happiness or some other ways the Buddha describes happiness. Mendicants, there are these four kinds of overflowing merit. Overflowing goodness that nurtures happiness, right? So doing good actions nurtures happiness. What for? Firstly, a noble disciple has experiential confidence in the Buddha. This is the first kind of overflowing merit, goodness that nurtures happiness. If you want to be happy, have faith in the Tathagata. Have faith in the Buddha. I know for some of us, faith is a dirty word, right? But faith brings happiness. You know, I have feel deep faith in the Buddha. And every time I think about the Buddha, it just brings joy to my mind. Furthermore, a noble disciple has experiential confidence in the teaching, the Dhamma. This is the second kind of overflowing merit, overflowing goodness that nurtures happiness. Furthermore, a noble disciple has experiential confidence in the Sangha. This is the third kind of overflowing merit, uh, overflowing goodness that nurtures happiness. Basically taking refuge, right? Tisarana, the triple gem. Taking refuge in the triple gem. Having faith in the triple gem brings happiness. Furthermore, a noble, disi noble disciple's ethical conduct is loved by the noble ones, unbroken, impeccable, spotless, and unmarred, liberating, praised by sensible people, not mistaken in leading to immersion, jhana. This is the fourth kind of overflowing merit, overflowing goodness that nurtures happiness. These are the four kinds of overflowing merit, overflowing goodness that nurture happiness. Right? So our behavior, our good behavior, our good seal, as I said earlier, gives us happiness. And then the next two suttas repeats the beginning. So I cut that out and I'm just going to jump to the part that changes, which is the last paragraph. Furthermore, a noble disciple lives at home rid of the stain of stinginess. Freely generous, open-handed, loving to let go, committed to charity, loving to give and to share. This is the fourth kind of overflowing merit, overflowing goodness that nurtures happiness. These are the four kinds of overflowing merit, overflowing goodness that nurture happiness. Dana, giving, charity, generosity, gives us happiness. Furthermore, a noble disciple is wise. They have the wisdom of arising and passing away, which is noble, penetrative, and leads to complete ending of suffering. This is the fourth kind of overflowing merit, overflowing goodness that nurtures happiness. These are the four kinds of overflowing merit, overflowing goodness that nurture happiness. Nibbana, insight, right? Insight into Nibbana, the deathless. That also brings us happiness. So we can see here that every stage of the path, right? Taking refuge, practicing dana, practicing sila, and the final goal of liberation, or even just stream entry, has as a result, happiness. And in this sutta, it's found in the uh, Nidana Vaga, right? In the chapter of uh, Samyutta Nikaya, in this 
place where it focuses on Paticca Samupada, dependent origination. And we see a very interesting correlation between uh, or description of how to escape, how to break the links of Paticca Samupada, right? And so I want to share that with you. So here it goes. Thus, bhikkhus with ignorance of Ija as proximate cause, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as proximate cause, consciousness. Uh, with consciousness as proximate cause, a name and form. With name and form as proximate cause, six sense bases. With the six sense bases as proximate cause comes contact. With contact as proximate cause, feeling. With feeling as proximate cause, craving as proximate cause, clinging. With clinging as proximate cause, existence. With existence as proximate cause, birth. With birth as proximate cause, suffering. As a prox- uh, with suffering as proximate cause, faith. Right? Okay. How do we, how do we stop this chain of Paticca Samupada? We're in suffering, right? How do we get rid of suffering? Oh, with faith. With faith as proximate cause comes gladness. And we already know that faith brings happiness, right? Faith in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha has the cause of happiness. And what does this faith in the Buddha and Dhamma Sangha give us? As we said earlier, it gives us gladness. Here it is. With gladness as proximate cause, rapture. With rapture as proximate cause, tranquility. With tranquility as proximate cause comes happiness as proximate cause. With concentration, uh, uh, with concentration as proximate cause, the knowledge and vision as things as they really are. With the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, as proximate cause comes revulsion or repulsion, right? As proximate cause, dispassion. With dispassion as proximate cause, liberation. With liberation as proximate cause, the knowledge of the destructions. So on the left side, you'll see the links, right? The nidanas, the links of Paticca Samupada, which is the cycle of suffering. These are the these are the causes and conditions, right? The different things that lead us to uh, experience all this suffering. And what is the way to escape this? To break this link, right? To get out of this process of suffering, this chain of suffering, this churning of suffering, this samsara, right? Faith, gladness, joy, tranquility, happiness, stillness, concentration. Do any of these sound stoic or like ascetic practices to you? No, no. <laughs> these are all great things. Faith is empowering. My grandma, she was Catholic and every morning she would wake up with her rosary, start praying in the morning, like at five or six in the morning. Man, she, that was such like a powerful thing at night. She would go to sleep. She would also be praying with her rosary. Like that's such a powerful image I have of my, of my grandma. And she was happy and she never stopped whether she was sick or whether I was being crazy or whatever I was doing. She was had that deep conviction of, of the power to keep going and it made her happy and it gave her a lot of purpose in life, even to her last days. Gladness, joy, tranquility, happiness, stillness. I'm translating, uh, uh, here, uh, concentration into stillness uh knowledge and vision of things as they really are repulsion dispassion liberation knowledge and destruction right so we get we get to knowledge we get to these results that are going to bring us freedom through faith gladness joy tranquility happiness and stillness right samadhi 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 samma means whole d means a state right a state of unification and samadhi is described as uh when there's no five hindrances, right? So when the five hindrances are not there, then that is samadhi. So what do you call that state when there's no hindrance in the mind, right? When there's no defilements in the mind, that is happiness, a state of happiness, a state of completion, samadhi, right? And from that state of happiness, we get knowledge and vision. We see things as they are. 
then we get like, oh, no thanks, right? And we get dispassionate towards those things. And that leads to freedom because we're no longer attached and clinging. And that leads to uh, knowledge of the destruction of all the asavas, all the influences. Okay, and I just want to leave you with this nice little quote right here in the Mucha Linda Sutta of the Udana. So these are the utterances of, of the Buddha, right? There is happiness and detachment for one who is satisfied. Who has heard the Dhamma? Who's, who sees? There is happiness for him who is free from ill will in the world, who is restrained towards breathing beings. The state of dispassion in the world is happiness. To be dispassionate is happiness, right? The complete transcending of sensual desires. But for he who has removed the conceit, I am. This indeed is the highest happiness. To overcome the self, right? Atta. To overcome the Atman. To overcome mana. This is the highest happiness, which means liberation. Nibbanam paramam sukam. Again, Yeah, so that was the kind of formal presentation that I wanted to share. And now I kind of want to give some practical <laughs> advice, right? Like, like, oh, that's all very beautiful. That's all beautiful that the suttas say this. But Bhante, how do we do this, right? Like, how do how do I get there? How do I practice this? So my teacher, Bhante Puniji, would talk about basically these kind of trainings. Uh, first, there's the like cognitive training, the way we think, we need to change the way that we think from dukkha to sukha. We need to change uh, our behavior from that which leads to dukkha to one that leads to sukha. We need to change our mind. Here it means like our mood, our affect, our temperament, our emotions from those that lead to dukkha to leading to sukha. And then finally, we have to change uh, our relationship with experience itself, vijnana, or we can say dhammas here, uh, from one that leads to attachment to I, seeing something permanent, to one that leads to happiness, which is seeing uh, the impermanent. So first, if we want to go from dukkha to sukha, we need to change the way we see the world. We need to focus on our perspective, which is called samaditi, usually translated as right view. But sama also means wholesome and harmonious. And I like to use those better because it has more of a happy feel to it than right. I try to get away from this dichotomous kind of way of thinking and more wholesome, holistic, uh, integrative ways of thinking. So what is samaditi, right? Samaditi is the view that leads us from dukkha to sukha. What is the type of view that leads us to dukkha? Those views that are stagnant. Those views that don't reflect reality, that are not in harmony with reality. What is reality? Well, we can talk about reality in, in, in one way, it's called the tilakana, the three characteristics of reality. If, if we want to suffer, which I don't think any of us do, then we see permanent in the impermanent. We see happiness in what doesn't bring happiness. And we see self where there is no self. That's the way to suffering. But the way to happiness is to see the impermanent as impermanent, right? To see the unsta- the, insta- the unstable as unstable. To see the conditioned as conditioned. And to see dispassion where others find passion, 
right? To be, to remove dispassion, uh, to be able to see the dukkha in what normal people call sukha, which here means sensuality, right? Not only sensuality, but also attachment to things need to be a certain way. And then finally, to make a shift from me, myself, and I in mind kind of worldview to a selfless worldview. This is the kind of cognitive shift that we need to have. This is one way of of talking about samaditi, right, view. I mean, there's a beautiful sutta by Venerable Arahant Sariputta called Samaditi Sutta, and he explains Samaditi in many ways. If you want to know more ways of talking about Samaditi, you can look at the Samaditi Sutta by Venerable Arahant Sariputta. But this is one way that we can talk about right view. And right view is the catalyst that leads us from dukkha to sukha because it helps us reorientate our life. And that's what the next step is about called Samasankapa. Samasankapa usually translated as like right thinking or right intention. Uh, a sankapa is some sort of thought um, or intention. Sama means harmonious. And what is that kind of thinking that leads to dukkha? The Buddha says that sensual thinking leads to dukkha, to suffering. Anger leads to suffering. And cruelty vi- slash violence leads to suffering. So then the Buddha proposes that we need to change our intentions, change the way we think into a way of thinking that promotes uh, renunciation, which just means letting go, practicing generosity, uh, to develop and cultivate the intentions of thoughts of abhyapada. Abhyapada literally means not or non-hatred, but it, the Buddha talked in a positive way, which means metta, loving kindness. And the next one is abhihimsa, which literally means non-violence, uh, but that means karuna, compassion. So if we want to move from dukkha to sukha, we need to reorientate um, our thought processes, our intentions, and have them be aligned with renunciation, loving kindness, and compassion. Right? And this is not a passive thing where like, oh, yeah, I know that's a good thing. It's an active thing where we constantly, constantly like reprogramming ourselves, right? That's why it's so important to listen to Dhamma talks, to listen to the Dhamma, to read the Dhamma, Right? And also to engage with our thoughts and recognize when there's a greedy thought, when there's a angry thought, when there's a cruel thought and be like, this is not going to benefit anyone. It doesn't lead to my happiness, to the happiness of others or to the happiness of anyone. So we put it aside and we actively engage with cultivating those wholesome states of mind, which is generosity, loving kindness and compassion. Then from there, we have all the behavioral parts, right? Right speech, right action and and right livelihood. So if we're living in an unharmonious way, which leads to the suffering of ourselves and others, then we re- we really can't be happy. We'll be worried about the consequences of our immoral behavior, of our bad conduct. There's always consequences. <laughs> and for some, for some people, that's enough to deter them from doing those things. But for many people, it's not. And that's because they don't really think about the consequences. They're thinking, well, they may not catch me or when it happens, I, they might catch me later or, you know, there is no future lives. There is no hell or there's no heaven or hell. So like I could just do whatever I want here. But as we understand the Dhamma, we begin to see that there will be future consequences. And that will kind of bring us back to, to wanting to do what's best for ourselves, which is 
you know, not go to prison, not get punished, not go to hell and all these kinds of things, which is just kind of like a provisionary thing. It's not kind of the the main thing, but it does serve us in the beginning to see the danger in our actions, right? But then the other part comes in where like, wait, wait a minute. Well, I don't want other beings to experience this suffering that will be the result of my unskillful actions and speech and livelihood. So there comes the compassion, the loving kindness. And it's from that loving kindness and compassion that we find happiness, right? Through our behavior. So it's actually happiness that promotes good behavior. Us wanting to be happy and other beings wanting to be happy. That's the real key to uh, to practicing right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Although in the beginning, this kind of fear or dread of bad consequences, right? Like going to a hell or getting in trouble can help us begin because... Uh, it's better, you know, not to hurt any being, you know, whatever you can hold, whatever kind of ideology you want. But at the end of the day, we don't want to hurt living beings. However, you get there as a provisional kind of measure, it's fine. And then, uh, we have, uh, the mental training. We have, uh, Samabayama, Samasati and Samasamadi, which is the meditative path. And what I really want to highlight on here, because I think most people know about jhana and, and the practice of Satipatthana, Vipassana. I want to focus on samabayama. Samabayama usually translated as right effort, right? And it's in, in this right effort that we see the kind of constant meditation that we need to do every day. So meditation is just not something that we do on the cushion or on retreats or on a weekend for three hours here. Uh, it's a way that we engage with every single experience that we have, every thought, every emotion, every feeling. Every word, every action, every hobby, job, or relationship that we have with ourselves and with the world is the practice. So in this Samavayama, the Buddha says that first we need to guard the mind. We need to protect the mind, and that's called Samvara. So this is the four trainings to how to, ha- how to have a happy mind. First one is practice Samvara. Samvara means to protect your mind, to protect the senses from unskillful states arising into the mind. So what does that mean? We need to practice restraint, right? If we know that watching a certain television show or watching the news or listening to a certain music or going to a certain place or being around certain people, et cetera, or having something in the fridge is going to entice us, we need to refrain from those situations, people, and things. That's one way to be happy, right? Just remove the temptation, remove Try to remove that object, which is going to cause unskillful states to come into your mind. But we know that to do it 100%, we all know that it's virtually impossible. We can't remove everything, right? We can't live in a cave as, as much as we want to or as much as we would like to try. That's not possible. But to the degree that we can, to the measure that we can, we try to make our lives a little bit easier for ourselves. So anything that you know that brings up anger, that brings up greed, that brings up sadness, please Try to remove those things from your life. You know, it might it may be a process of many months or many years, but let's work on that. Let's work on protecting our mind by removing uh, these things that might trigger us into uh, thinking and speaking and acting in unwholesome ways. Then the next training is called pahana. Pahana means to eliminate, to remove something. So the Buddha says when an unskillful state in the mind arises, one removes it, does away with it, throws it away. How? By replacing it with a wholesome state of mind. That's called uh, bhavana. Bhavana means to cultivate wholesome states in the mind when they're not present, right? So there's a beautiful sutta called the uh, Vitaka Santana Sutta. 
Majimani Kaya number 19 or 20. I know the number's escaping my mind right now. Uh, in this Vitaka Santana Sutta, the Buddha tells us, you know, how to calm our minds. Santana means to calm, to tranquilize our thoughts, calming thoughts. Vitaka is a thought. And here the Buddha says that the first thing that we do, our first approach should be that when an unwholesome state arises, we uh, replace it by cultivating a wholesome state in our mind. So when anger appears, we practice loving kindness. When cruelty appears, we practice uh, compassion. When greediness appears, we uh, think about generosity, right? Interesting, also, loving kindness works for fear, too, to overcome fear, the Buddha says. So if we feel fear in the mind, we also practice loving kindness. So then the Buddha gives us all these ways uh, that we can, you know, be able to work with unwholesome states when they arise in the mind. So that means throughout the day, as we go about driving and working and interacting with people, we're always have a sense of uh, introspection, right? There's this kind of in- attention we have to our uh, inner world. And we see, you know, is there greed? Is there hatred? Is there delusion? Is there cruelty? Is there fear? Is there jealousy? Is there resentment? And whatever that is, we become aware of it. And then we make an effort. That's why it's called Vayama, right? Effort. We make an effort to overcome it by cultivating the opposite, right? So a lot of times in meditation or in, you know, meditative circles, we kind of take a neutral stance to unwholesome states, right? Just watch them arise and let them cease and watch them arise and let them cease. And that's fine because we're cultivating a sense of non-reactivity, right? We're learning to to sit with the uncomfortable feeling. And that's a great tool. But we also need to work at removing those uncomfortable things and taking them out too, right? So being mindful of them in and of itself is not enough. It gives us, it, it provides a gap. It makes a gap so we don't react and we don't feed those unwholesome things. But we need to make an effort to change our underlying tendencies, our anusayas, to change the way we think, to change our intentions. And that's an active process. You just can't sit back and watch it to change the way you think. You need to create new ways of thinking. And that's we find in the Doidavitaka Sutta, two types of thinking. That's Majima Nikaya number 18 or number 17, where the Buddha says that we need to change the way we think, our patterns of thinking, our intentions. We need to actively change it. And it's a process that we're doing all the time. That's bhavana. That's what bhavana means. Bhavana means to cultivate all the time, cultivating wholesome states in the mind. And the last the last one, the fourth one of the Samavayama training is called Anurakana. And Anurakana just means to continue, to maintain the practice, right? So we're always, all the time, trying to protect the mind, practice sense restraint. All the time when unwholesome states arise in the mind, we're eliminating them. And all the time we're cultivating wholesome states in the mind. From the moment that we wake up to the moment that we go to sleep, right? We find this moment, we find this going, waking up and going to sleep meditative practice in the Satipatthana Sutta. We find it in the Karaniya Metta Sutta and many other places. So meditation is ongoing all the time. It never stops, right? In the Satipatthana Sutta, it's lovely. It's, the Buddha says, whether you're urinating or defecating, one has sati, mindful, Right? No matter what you're doing, all the time, every time is a time for practice. And to have sati, to realize, is this a kusala wa akusala vitaka, right? Kusala wa kusala dhamma. Is this a wholesome or unwholesome thought or wholesome or unwholesome state? It should be always happening. A monk, a person is always mindful, ever mindful from waking up to going to sleep. Right? Uh, Let me check my time. 
Yeah, so that, I think that really kind of concludes what I wanted to say about this topic, about one, showing you the various places in the suttas where the Buddha is telling us how important happiness is and how happiness is the path and happiness is the beginning, the middle, and the end. How the Buddha's own experience to awakening had happiness, how the practice of taking refuge in the Buddha and Dhamma and Sangha is happiness. Practicing good behavior is happiness. Practicing generosity is happiness, right? Practicing meditation is happiness. And insight itself, right? Uh, uh, wisdom itself is also happiness, right? And the many ways that we can go about practicing happiness through the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. So the problem that we're all in is dukkha. And the solution to our problem is sukha. And sukha is not somewhere else in nirvana. It's not in another place. <laughs> sukha is available to you here and now through the practice of the Dhamma. Yes. So now I think it's time for the Q&A. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, we can do that either through uh, people raising their hands if they want or through the chat. Yeah, however you feel comfortable. If you want to type it out, that's fine. If you want to raise your real hand or digital hand, that's also fine. We need one brave non-soul to start us off then everyone will start talking <laughs> who will be the catalyst oh Mahesh thank you good friend <laughs> uh, th thank you for uh, this talk mm -hmm. uh, so I, my question is on uh, replacing unwholesome with uh, wholesome mm -hmm. um, so throughout the day um, like when we get into this unwholesome state it, it's very obvious like we, we are distressed about something it is bothering us um so ignoring that and trying to trying to practice the corresponding wholesome state is seems to be what is suggested mm -hmm. but uh isn't that ignoring the emotion that is real there uh, is it more important to be with that emotion um letting it be being kind with it and letting it be so some, I mean, somewhere, some other teaching suggests that to just be with the emotion, uh, let it be and uh, not wanting something else. Mm. Versus when we try to practice the whole something, we are ignoring this and we're practicing. Uh, so how do we, how do I correlate this, both of these teachings? Yeah, so here we find a middle way, right? That's the whole thing about Buddhism, <laughs> the middle way. So yes, in the beginning, we use our sati, right? Our sati sampajanya our awareness, our mindfulness and clear comprehension to see, oh, here's anger. Look at this anger, right? We kind of sit, we kind of look at it for a little bit, not too long to investigate it. And then we say, is holding this anger, is this anger serving me? Is it beneficial? Does anger lead to happiness? Do other people like anger? No, actually, it's, it's not a good thing. It doesn't serve anyone. It's destructive. What should I do instead? Oh, I should cultivate something that's constructive, something that leads towards Nibbana, something that is good for me and good for others. What's that? Oh, loving kindness. Is loving kindness good for me? Yes. Is it good for others? Yes. Is it good for everyone? Yes. Is there any danger in cultivating loving kindness? No. Let me cultivate loving kindness. So in the beginning, we might take a few seconds or a minute to become aware 
of the unwholesome state like anger or fear or jealousy. We investigate it. And then comes the time, okay, this is not good. This is not, this is not good for me, good for others. It's time to develop something that's good. So there is a place for holding it, but it's just for the amount necessary, right? So there's a certain necessariness of, of looking at it and investigating it, but that shouldn't be our end all be all practice of so just like, okay, I'm just going to let it be here because no one benefits from sitting in anger. It's not a wholesome thing. Nobody wants, it feels uncomfortable even to begin with, right? So then we make an effort. So we have to find a delicate balance of like seeing it clearly, investigating it, and then comes the replacing it and cultivating the opposite. Yeah, because there can be a danger, Mahesh, you're right. There could be a danger I've seen in some people where they get this aversion, right? As soon as anger pops up, like, oh no. And they try to like push it down right away and crunch it down. So there is a danger in the step Sampajanya being fully aware of it. We're trying to suppress, but we're trying to develop an uh, adequate response, a wholesome response, a skillful response to unwholesome states of mind by cultivating uh, the opposite. Thank you for that question. Thank you. Uh, oh, I didn't notice who's next. I think it's Aileen. Is it was Aileen next, or was it Haiti? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I think it might have been me, but I'll okay. uh, I'll go ahead if I may. Uh, good morning, and thank you very much for this session. I appreciate it, and I was very attracted to the title because I'm afraid I'm one of those people. Maybe you have some advice. Who for, for me, uh, you know, I I try to practice the Eightfold Path and all that, but it feels like a duty. It feels mm. hard and heavy, and it doesn't feel happy. It mm. just feels like, you know, uh, oh, there I go again being annoyed, or there I go again wanting something. And so mm. that sounds like there's wrong view there, but maybe do you have any advice about how to not feel like this is just a big job that I have now on top of my job? Thank you. Aileen, what, what's your favorite part of the Dhamma? What do you love to practice? The loving kindness practice, especially I started lately thinking of people I know and wishing for them unconditional happiness instead of just saying, may you be happy, may you have unconditional happiness. And that made me feel happy too. Just do that. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Heidi. Hi there. Um, this is um, very wonderful teachings, uh, so in depth, and um, my humanness hasn't attained a lot of the places that you've talked about. But one thing that has come to me over the recent weeks and times, are both internationally and in my own private life, is that sometimes some really hard things come up, and I just have a really difficult time. Um, I'm aware, I have come to awareness about knowing that I need to shift into goodness. But uh, as you say, I don't always, it's not, it's a practice that uh, it is not uh, automatic. And also, um, you know, I've spent most of my life as an American person figuring things out and spending a lot of time in the like looking at it. And I realized that is also um, not helpful as a rule. It has not led to the answers. 
And I'm not powerful enough to know or to do what needs to be happening around certain situations. So it's really nice to have meditation practice in my life. I'm so grateful for teachings such as what you're offering. And I I do know that I can get in nature and find peace. I can look at the natural world and know that um, they've got it figured out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure this is helpful to anybody, but for me, that's where I go. But I also go to meditation practice and I go to, um, I go to my higher power and I, I go to my refuges, which are, you know, have to do with, uh, you know, the practice of meditation and the teaching, the Dharma and the Sangha, you know, um, anyway, that's just a very free for all, um, take on what you've offered. And I'm very grateful to hear that, um, shifting gears into the practices of that lead to goodnesses. It, it, it was as if I had never heard it before. So, which I have, I'm sure, but, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Heidi, for sharing. Uh, Carrie. Thank you. Um, there's a story I heard of a teacher. I can't remember who it was, but someone, you know, back from the last century who whoever he was practicing with, it was part of their culture to not smile because Mm. it would be sort of disrespectful to the suffering in the world. So he used to carry a little fan to hide his smile. Um, And I guess my question is about like holding suffering. Uh, I have a, you know, a tendency sometimes to just kind of hang out in the pleasantness of the breath and kind of is, Mm -hmm you know, can be a bit like an escape from what's hard about the world. And um, how do we sort of practice um, uh, with sort of happiness as the goal while not sort of veering into like a cultural spiritual bypass where we're sort of not keeping in mind and keeping in our hearts um, the suffering around us. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, and, you know, no matter how hard we try, there's enough suffering to go around and you can't run away from it. So, <laughs> you know, uh, but how difficult it is to find happiness. That's rare. So my perspective is, hey, whenever you can find like real happiness, it's not like sensuality or indulgence and in something like that and uh, something trivial, then take it. Because it's so rare to find. I mean, it's always dukkha, 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 dukkha all the time, 24-7. You wake up, pain, right? Especially as you're getting older. Like the middle, there's so much, there's too much suffering. We need more happiness, you know? Uh, so my my attitude is just like, hey, those little moments that you can find happiness, take. there's nothing wrong because as soon as you come out of it, you're going to go back into suffering. Anyways, you know, so <laughs> let's not go looking for more suffering when there's already enough suffering there. We don't need to go looking for trouble. Uh, Bonte, there's a, Oh, I, I, Claire just raised her hand. There's she, I, I think she also had a message in the chat. But... Oh, sorry about that. Go ahead, Claire. 
Yes, thank you very much. <clears throat> this is another question than the one I put in the chat. Questions okay. are popping up. Um, this question has to do with mudita. Mm -hmm. So that's coming a lot. I'm finding a lot of happiness is generated from it's it's definitely a um, a cultivation now in, in, in this practice here. It's an active cultivation, but it is leading on with its own momentum because it's a joy machine. I mean, when when I started kind of touching into that power of um, of an approach like that. Um, it it just is a little joy machine, you know. It's a pleasure machine. So I don't know. I mean, you mentioned everything else under the sun in, in Buddhist studies in the Dharma, but uh, but I I really find that that mudita that appreciation not just of people and when when something good happens to somebody, but just appreciation, like really appreci appreciation, even in a hard moment. Mm. There's this very big person in front of you who's really a whole world and. And even if something disappointing is happening or hard or there's anger coming even um, um, and anger rising within, you know, just to remember like that appreciation, it just seems very powerful to me right now in the practice. You know, Claire, it, it, it really is because in many, in, in many suttas, the Buddha describes the gradual training starting with dana, with giving. And when people give, people usually respond with saying anumodana, anumodami. What does that mean? It means to rejoice, to rejoice in the goodness of others, right? When you see someone else do something good, which is dana, like giving, being charitable, you should rejoice in their happiness, right? Their happiness is your happiness. Your happiness is their happiness. And that's like, mudita is like the perfection of that, <laughs> Right. Of being able to rejoice in all the goodness that's happening in the world. Right. And it's like kind of like. Like a joyful mining, like mining joyfulness. Right. Like it just keeps going and 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 going. So that's a beautiful practice. And just for those of you like who may not be on the same level as Claire, you know, you could you could start by rejoicing in people's good actions. So when you see someone hold the door open, when you see someone be kind, like make an effort to see it. And, and, and see the value in it and cultivate that value and be like, wow, that's so beautiful. And keep, you know, cultivating it like a meditation, like you would with loving kindness. That was so nice. That was so kind. That was so generous. And you keep doing that and doing that. And next thing you know, you'll be on this, uh, joyful, like autopilot mining that's going to be going on. Like, like, like our friend Claire is here, but yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful practice. And it's actually right in the beginning of the path, which with Donna, we start recognizing that, uh, Goodness makes us happy and to see goodness in, in others brings us joy. Mudita literally means joy. Uh, yeah, so thank you for sharing that. Oh, and the second, the other question you had in the chat, what was the third step? Yeah, third training. So the first one is called Samvara. Samvara is Indriya Samvara, which means to guard and protect the senses, to practice sense restraint. The second one is called pahana. Pahana means to eliminate or remove. So we remove unwholesome states. And then bhavana. Bhavana means to cultivate wholesome states in the mind is the third one. 
And the fourth one is anurakana, which means to maintain this practice, right? We're always doing these three things all the time. Mahesh. Um, so during the day when we, um, you suggested to have this all the time to have the sense restraint and then practice um, sleepless, unwholesome, with wholesome. Um, there is also being aware of all the bodily movements during the day. There are like practices like that. Um, I'm wondering like, um, So we we are we are being asked to just observe all the mental states and also the bodily movements, and uh, I know you didn't say the bodily movements, but I'm trying to see like th- th- these are like a lot of things to be aware of all the time. Um, how do we go about these different things? Um, so is it like maybe when there is something disturbing, that's when like pay attention to that. And then if there's nothing disturbing, everything is quiet, then watch the body or, or do something else. Or uh, yeah, that's my question. Yeah, there's this beautiful line in, in the Anapanasati and Satipatthana Suttas where the Buddha says, one develops mindfulness to the extent necessary. Right? So mindfulness, we develop it to a necessary extent. But it's not all that we're doing, or we don't. We try to be like super mindful all the time, a heightened super mindfulness. What is the purpose of sati? What is the purpose of mindfulness? To recognize when there is unwholesome states in the mind, and to recognize when there's unwholesome states in the mind. That is the purpose of it, right? So when we're aware of the body, we're becoming aware of the body to be able to recognize, you know, this movement, this speech where is it coming from is it coming from hatred is it coming from greed is it coming from loving kindness and compassion so the real core of of the training of mindful training is is in being able to notice the hindrances to be able to notice the taints to be able to notice the defilements to be able to notice the underlying tendencies to be able to notice the influences the asavas right so we can do something about it Right. So we stop reacting to them and instead we respond by developing the wholesome qualities. So mindful uh, serves to let us know what's happening. And then we respond with the, with a skillful response. So I know it's kind of popular in like popular Buddhism or popular mindfulness where mindfulness in itself becomes like its own thing. Like, okay, it's just all about like, knowing where you're stepping and walking and like what you're looking at and opening the door and all these kind of like things, it kind of becomes like, I don't know, some sort of like exercise like Tai Chi or asana practice, yoga asana practice. But it's not really that. Mindfulness and, and, and Satisampajanya are supposed to help us be more introspective and look at the mind. That's what they're really there for. So it's not just for knowing our bodily movements, but to see the state of our mind. That's the purpose. That's the most important thing. So yes, we can be aware of our body and mind, but the real, the, the real emphasis should be on knowing 
when there's sloth and torpor, knowing when there's anger, knowing when there's worry and anxiety, knowing when there's doubt, knowing when there's jealousy, and knowing when there's skillful states like joy and loving kindness and compassion and equanimity. So that's the core of the practice. Thank you. And, and when there is nothing going on in the mind, uh, I mean, there's no, nothing disturbing going on in the mind, uh, do we, uh, we may be lost in thought. I mean, that's happening probably, but uh, what do we do when nothing is going on? Nothing disturbing is going on. Yeah, the Buddha says when there's no wholesome state of mind present in the mind, one develops, one generates a wholesome state where there is none. Right? So, there's no time to chill, actually, in Buddhism. <laughs> there's no time for that. We like to think about, like, no thought, right? This kind of, it's kind of like an escapist view that we have in the West sometimes of meditation, right? Or like, oh, I want to get away from my thoughts. I want to get away from all these things and push them aside and just be, like, in this kind of separated state in meditation, a separation from everything. But actually, when we look at the suttas, the practice is always engaging, always engaging from the moment that you wake up to when you go to sleep and everything that you do, you're engaged with what's happening in your inner world all the time, aware of unwholesome states, aware of wholesome states, getting rid of unwholesome states, cultivating wholesome states. It's a it's a training. You know, it's a very prolonged, difficult, strenuous, tiring training to change the way we see the world, to change the way we think. It's something that we do all the time. So we, I think we need to change some, in some ways, the ways that we see meditation as a way to like chill out or go on vacation from the world. And no, your everyday life is the meditation. And it might be easier to practice in the beginning on the cushion because it's kind of hard in every, in, in just to go out there and start doing things. But no, like we're always engaged with every thought. The Buddha even says for the monks, especially that one should one should be one should scrutinize even the most smallest unwholesome thought you know even the smallest one you should scrutinize it like you shouldn't give yourself a pass even for the smallest unwholesome thought that you have right during the day so it's to that degree to that measure that we always need to be engaged in a lot of the responses i've gotten to that it's like oh bonte that sounds like so tiring like I have, I'm so busy at work. I'm always thinking anyways. I have all these things to do. It sounds like you're telling me there's something else I need to do. Yes. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, the Buddha clearly says many times, one does what needs to be done. Right? So it's a difficult path. And that's why it's a path of hundreds of lives, millions of lives to practice. Um, so, yeah, I guess what I'm just trying to say is that there's a lot of work. And the work is all the time. And it's not necessarily always going to be this chill state where we get away from our thoughts, but instead engaging with our thoughts, engaging with our emotions, engaging with our feelings all the time, 24-7. Always watchful of unskillful states of mind and always encouraging and promoting happiness, loving kindness, compassion, skillful states of mind. Thank you. That's very helpful.
I'm really loving all these questions. I love engaged audience. You know, uh, every other Saturday in the evening, like today, I teach the kids Dharma school. And it, sometimes I have to pull teeth to get them to say stuff like the little kids. You know, it's so hard. So it's it's very different to have uh, an, an audience that, you know, is more interested and I don't have to pull teeth and force them to talk. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate all of you for all your questions and comments. Well, maybe I can open it up. Is there any other type of questions maybe about me? Do you have any questions you'd like to ask? Any personal questions about my own practice or about me being a monk or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. would love to know about your path, what helped you most, what brought you into practice. And uh, I think the best things you learned being a monk or... Uh, your spiritual path. Yeah. So there's there's two things that stand out to me that were the most beneficial and transformative in my practice. And one was the catalyst and still to this day, the most important one, the foundation to my practice, which is um, being surrounded by good people. Like that is the key, you know, like having good teachers, good friends, being around good monks and good supporters of the monks. Without these people around me, I'd be lost. I would have given up a long time ago. So community, sangha, you know, uh, Kalyanamita, spiritual friendship is the foundation for everything. Everything, everything that I've experienced so far wouldn't be it's not possible, wouldn't, wouldn't have been possible without them, you know, so I really need that. And I know that's the highest blessing I have in my life right now, all, all the monks and people around me and my family and friends. And the second thing, which is something that I actually, <laughs> I never thought I was going to start leaning this way. But, uh, you know, I came into meditation very much like Vipassana and kind of very focused on the suttas. So it's very intellectual and very focused on like, yeah, meditation, especially when it comes to like this more, yeah, Satipatthana, Vipassana kind of traditions. And then I hit a wall, you know, I hit a wall. And, uh, and I noticed that I was just becoming kind of grumpy, you know, and, and, and yeah, there was like a lot of stagnation. And then I just, I just started listening to what my meditation teacher, Bhantipuniji, would always say, which what I thought, I thought his advice was for other people. Like, oh yeah, that's for those other people. That's what that he's saying that for them. But I realized, no, no, it's for me too, <laughs> which was the practice of the Brahma Viharas. You know, for me in the beginning, you know, I was a military guy. I was into martial arts. I was a party guy. Like, yeah. So telling me to sit there and be like, oh, let's be kind to everyone. Let's be nice. Hearts and kisses and rainbows and things like that. I was like, no, thanks. Like, I want the serious meditation. Give me the Vipassana. Like, that's the only real meditation. Everything else is just for other people, you know, those softies. And um, yeah, I noticed that it just made me like a really cold and indifferent and 
and I became very frustrated in my practice. So then I just started practicing a lot of meta meditation, a lot of loving kindness, compassion, Brahma Viharas, and doing it from the moment that I wake up to when I go to sleep, you know, so like all the time, may all beings be well, happy, comfortable, and peaceful. May all beings be happy, riding the bus, like sweeping, cleaning the toilets, like all the time, constant. When I saw anger arise in me, I said, no, 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 meta time, meta. And I just like all the time practicing. And I just became so much happier. And then I noticed, oh, wow, like my Vipassana practice is also becoming easier. Like it's, it's helping me. It's supporting me. And it just like, it really transformed me as a person. Like I think the most visible, visible fruits or results of the practice have come from Brahma Viharas. Um, and yeah, so I think two things that have helped me the most, uh, or the most important most important factors in in my spiritual progress have been uh, community, sangha, good friends. And the other one is uh, Brahma Bihara's loving kindness, compassion, mudita, and equanimity. Claire. Thank you. Um, how do you... How do you mix up personally the Vipassana and the Brahma Viharas in your practice? And it's probably changed over time, but how do you, how do you go about that personally? Yeah. So to me, like Brahma Viharas is just the way I live my life. I never say anything out of hatred or animosity or jealousy. I always try not to do it. When even a thought of anger comes up to me, I get like the heebie-jeebies. I'm like, ooh, that's, that's like, like something dirty touched me. I'm like, no, I don't want that. Don't put that on me. Uh, so it's just the way I come into the world now, you know, like all the time. That's the way I try to live my life. And then, yes, maybe like once a day, I'll do formal meta meditation for 30 minutes. But that's like a supplementary practice. <laughs> the real practice is every day in everything that I do opening the doors for people, when I speak to people, when I send emails, especially. We need a lot of meta when we send emails. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, emails is a very dangerous place. Um, or when we make comments on social media, it's a dangerous place. We need a lot of meta there too. So yeah, just practicing meta in my everyday life. And then the Vipassana comes in in formal practice and usually right after meta. So I'll warm up with like 30 minutes of meta meditation. And then I'll go into my Vipassana practice and I just feel so light. My mind is so clear and joyful and I'm energetic. And I just like, it's a great soil. It's like great soil for like working with, with uh, Vipassana. Aileen? Thank you for sharing that, Bhante, about... Um... The uh, Brahma Vihara practice that's very inspiring. My, I guess, question or problem is how do you deal with aversion to yourself, which comes up for me a lot when I do these practices and I just feel like I'm not good enough and I don't know enough and there's a lot of self-criticism um, to get from where I am to just kind of enjoying metta is a little bit difficult. If you have any advice, I'd appreciate it. Mm. Well, Eileen, you know, am I good enough? Is Claire good enough? Sure. Yeah, yeah. 
we're the same. I'm a human being. You're a human being. Whatever faults I have, you know, we share the same, maybe a lot of the similar faults and a lot of the similar positive qualities. We're the same, you know, so we have to, we have to stop seeing ourselves as unique, either uniquely better than others or uniquely worse, <laughs> right? And we have to see that, no, we're, we're all in this together. We're all suffering. We're all overcome by greed, hatred, and, and delusion in the same way, you know, that I wish well for others. Others wish well for me. So maybe you can try that. Focus on how others, like, are practicing metta towards you and how they see you as worthy and how they care about you and they care about your well-being and they want you to be happy. You know, so just kind of maybe flip your meditation and see how others are sending metta to you and how, and see how others do think that you're worthy and that you're valuable and that you're important. Thank you. Those are both very helpful perspectives. I appreciate it. Um, so one thing that I have been thinking about is in order to practice replacing unwholesome thoughts with wholesome thoughts or doing Brahma Viharas, um, first thing is we should let go of, I don't know if you should let go of, but what I'm thinking is should really let go of wanting something or, uh, um, or being able to be with a difficult feeling, um, you should be willing to do that in order to move on to this next stage of replacing unwholesome thoughts or doing Brahma Viharas. So when we are in the process in the world, when we are trying to get something, it, it's, it, it may not be for a selfish purpose. Maybe it's something that's the right thing to be done. How do we go about um, doing balancing that with uh, practicing because when we try to replace this unwholesome thoughts with wholesome, we may need to sometimes give up on that for others. The, there is a balance that needs to be. How do you how do we balance that? Can you just tell me a little bit, like more, or can you just repeat what you said, please? Yeah. So, uh, so whenever I'm trying to get something in my mm -hmm. life, and then there are other people that come uh, in the way. Mm -hmm. There can be some difficult moments there. Um, so now I can replace my unwholesome thoughts, wishing well for them, and uh, not, not uh, even if that generates some anger or difficulty, I can try to replace that with goodwill towards them. But again, I need to get this thing done or get this thing in the world, whatever I'm going after. Can you get it by being nice? Can you get it by being kind and loving? Yeah, that's then the Get it that way. Okay. But sometimes that requires, when other people are not playing fair, uh, it requires, um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I think, yeah, you can, you can continue, but then sometimes you have to give up on this thing, um, which is what probably we choose, right? We can give up on that, uh, but we'll not, 
will not give up on the kindness. The last, the last couple of years, a lot of, uh, especially Latinos uh, that were in the activist community came, started coming to the temple. And during Black Lives Matter, like a huge influx of Latino activists started coming. And they started talking about how they were just always angry and upset. And it, they thought that their anger was was the solution to overcoming the suffering and the problems in, in the world. And they just, they burned out. Like none of them are doing activism anymore. And then my question was to them, well, can we help others from love and compassion instead of helping, trying to help others from, from hatred and suffering? And I really believe that we can do everything. We can be amazing activists coming from love and compassion and peace and kindness. We don't need, we don't need anger to be our fuel. We don't need suffering to be our fuel. We don't need conflict or adversity or chaos or inciting people to, to do things. You know, uh, there might, it might, it might not happen the way that we want it to happen or to the speed that we want it to happen, but that's always the case. That's always the case. It never happens the way we want it to happen. It never happens as fast as we want it to happen. Whether we do it from happiness and kindness or we do it from anger and suffering, things are just going to happen the way they happen. So one thing that I've been working with, you know, uh, this active Latino activist community is like, let's approach each problem out of love and compassion and, and happiness instead of uh, anger and hatred and, and, and pain. And uh, yeah, so it's something that we're still exploring, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to work with that and see how that looks like for us. But uh it de- has definitely had a, a a beneficial impact, at least in their own lives, you know, <laughs> individually on the on the people and the people who are uh, doing this kind of activist work. They're in a lot better place now than they were in the past. So now it's just about like translating that into more organized kind of work. Oh, Rick, go ahead. I think Rob's enjoying a chai tea somewhere. <laughs> um, several things have come up to me, and I just really wanted to make a comment. I have very low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Had a great career, and I counteracted my low self-esteem with uh, capabilities, leadership capabilities that allowed me intolerance of others. Um, if I was accepted, I was okay. If I wasn't, person had to go away mm. and so i lived a whole existence that way this suffering path i kind of liken it to on the 10 you can relate to this um highway full of cars that's very slowly moving causing a lot of frustration right and then you run into an accident and you have to sit there and sit there It seemed like I was always going slow, wanting to go fast, or in an accident that I had to navigate through. This low self-esteem that created such an uncomfortability. Um, I've been been studying for years. I'm retired. And um, through my studies, 
I kind of gathered an understanding via the Abhidhamma of the Chittasakas, mm-hmm. you know, the Javanas or Javana, what is it, Javanas, the impulse mm-hmm. uh, things. Um, and that they are deep within these kalapas. They are deep within this, as quantum physics would say, into these molecules of energy that are buried inside of me that are holding these defilements and aggregates. And when you brought up the Brahma Baharas, it was the hardest thing I ever do. did. I was, I was into this practice, deep, intense into this practice for probably seven years before I would even <laughs> venture into a meta practice or a meta meditation. And I just couldn't get my arms around this this love characteristic. But I, I kind of, thanks to the Abhidhammas excusing me of being a bad person and saying these characteristics are of your reality, but they're going to come up. Mm-hmm. They just come up. And when they do... The coping mechanism that I had was ineffective and frustrating and uncomfortable for the heart. The cheetah would just, you know, just kind of tense up. Mm. When I started doing the Brahma Baharas and uh, Mutita was mentioned, and I started having some appreciation, joy for myself, love for myself, put a lot of emphasis on consideration of others. Mm. I found that what was, what had I been waiting for? It was, it was a transformation of sorts that allowed me a, 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 a real paradigm shift. And it was, it was overwhelmingly beneficial. And I started writing and writing and writing as a, as an influence to bringing out, those characteristics that I felt via the Abhidhamma that I really had not a lot of control over. These defilements that I had, the aggregates, the karma, it was it was these characteristics that were responding to um, in a defense mechanism, you know, to the situation. And it was the conditioning that I knew now existed and so some after some years i still suffer from the low self-esteem it's very difficult for me to put myself out there for example Mm. but um the path is opening up more and more every day and i just want to say thank you and thank you to everyone thank you so much rick for being brave and compassionate you know I think many of us, to some degree, have struggled. I know for myself, I talked about my experience with Brahma Viharas, right? <laughs> I kind of thought this is like for children or something, you know, like it's not serious business. And uh, yeah, I think I think that we'd be surprised how many people struggle with self-esteem issues or or loving kindness practices because we either think that you know we're not worthy or that. Uh, it's not the real practice, you know, like this, I want the high stuff. I want the good stuff and things like that. But Give uh, me a jhana, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you know, through the practice of Brahma Viharas, you can get into jhana too. So, like, you know, that's too. Yeah, I, and fortunately, I have that kind of. I, I'm I'm reluctant to call it absorption, but I I can get into the jhanas and find a lot of those characteristics. The the um, the the development of that deep deep meditation where it feels like your respiratory system no longer is even working. You know, um, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, I mean, the loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity make the mind very calm and still. It brings a stillness of mind and stillness of body, too, because it becomes so relaxed. It's no longer driven by anger or fear or protection. It finds real security in itself, inner security, inner safety, inner stability. And that leads to that tranquility of mind, that samadhi, which leads us into into jhana and the good thing about brahma viharas is that as i said it's something that you live throughout the day it's not something like jhana where i have to go on the cushion or vipassana where i have to go on the cushion like brahma viharas is a way of life it's it's a way of being and so that i find that's the part of it that's really um transforming in that you can see the results here and now and other people around you notice it too they'll see the difference when you practice brahma viharas so i feel like brahma viharas is really like the social dimension, right? And uh, like uh, the fruits that are clearly visible here and now that may not be so visible with like the insights that we get in meditation. Sometimes we're not sure about our insights or they don't come as often, but through the practice of Brahma Viharas, in every action that you do, you can see the results, you know, whether it's coming from a place of loving kindness or hatred or greediness. Okay, now we are at the official end. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>